Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 3, The New World. Imagine aliens invade Earth. But not like super advanced, we have absolutely no chance against them type aliens. Imagine these aliens are from a civilization a lot like us, both physically and technologically. Sure, they have spaceships, but they're still very early on in their exploration of space. And so at first they're sending what are basically advanced scouts. Two or three small ships carrying just a handful of them. So you might pop on Instagram and see pictures of selfies with these visitors from above. Hashtag must be a filter. You turn on the news, breaking, reports of alien sightings. But over time, you hear more and more stories with more and more details. Some say all they really want is to spread their knowledge to the innocent and ignorant people of Earth. Others say they want to enslave us. By the time you finally spot these aliens for yourself, off on the horizon, making their way down to your town, what's your response? How do you react? Which stories do you believe? When the Calusa stood on the shores of southwest Florida and saw large alien ships emerge from the horizon, they must have been asking themselves similar questions. The Calusa had heard about these strange visitors from other natives in the area who claimed these aliens had already visited their towns. And now they would get a chance to see for themselves if the stories were true. They would also have to decide how they would greet these visitors. And their decision just may have bought South Florida's natives several more decades of peace than they otherwise would have had. These were Spanish aliens, by the way, if you haven't already guessed by this point. The Spanish were still in the early years of exploring the New World after having first reached it in 1492. It was 1513 when the Calusa were standing on that beach, so between the time Columbus had made first contact until that fateful day in southwest Florida, just 21 years had passed. Unlike in our modern-day hypothetical that opened up the episode, the Calusa had no Instagram. No CNN, no Twitter. All they had was one brief interaction and word of mouth. And though the Spanish had not really made too much of an effort to explore Florida during those early years, they had generated enough of a presence that by the end of that second decade, the Calusa were on notice that something was amiss. Now we're going to have to flash back to 1492 to understand why the Spanish had spent such little time in Florida during those early decades. And it's a little odd, too. You wouldn't have been faulted for thinking that Florida, and even Miami, would have been one of the earliest places to be colonized by the Spanish. Because back in 1492, the first spot in the New World that Columbus landed on was in the Bahamas a mere stone's throw away. But as luck would have it for South Florida's natives, 
Columbus quickly headed south and focused his efforts on exploring and conquering the heart of the Caribbean, places like Cuba, Hispaniola, and that tiny island that would by the happenstance of history become tied to the eventual Spanish exploration of Florida, Puerto Rico. The Spanish were just too preoccupied to get involved with Florida right away. They spent those first two decades exploring, conquering, enslaving, and settling those Caribbean islands. It was only after that, once things started to get a little more crowded, that political drama and a crappy contract combined to push the Spanish into Florida. See, back before Columbus ever stepped foot in the New World, when he was still bouncing around the Iberian Peninsula, trying to get someone to bankroll his crazy plan to sail across that part of the maps with all the sea dragons and whirlpools, he ended up at the Spanish court. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand agreed to test the idea that would cause heartburn for flat earthers ever since. And they had their lawyers draw up a contract with Columbus. But the terms the Spanish crown agreed to were insane. I mean, here comes Columbus, hat in hand, after already failing to get Portugal to sponsor his pipe dream, begging for a mere three ships and a handful of men, and Ferdinand and Isabella agreed to give him the right to govern and the right to one-tenth of all the income derived from all the lands that he found for him and his heirs. And that just seems like poor negotiating, and it probably comes as no surprise that this royal contract would eventually become a royal pain in the butt for the royal family. Because once it eventually became clear that there were two whole continents in the part of the maps with all the sea serpents and krakens, the Spanish crown began to kick themselves. And as those first two decades in the New World rolled by, each new territory explored and colonized under the command of Columbus was new territory in which the crown was giving up some pretty significant rights. In 1509, about 17 years into this arrangement, Columbus died. And King Ferdinand sees a way out of this mess. He tried to prevent Columbus's son, Diego, from exercising his rights under the contract, but the Spanish courts upheld Diego's inheritance, making him viceroy of Hispaniola, Cuba, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico. So, what do Columbus's son, this crappy contract, and Puerto Rico all have to do with Florida? Well, by this time, Puerto Rico was a flourishing island colony governed by the ever-ascending conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon. But de Leon had a problem. He was close to King Ferdinand, and as the crown-appointed governor of Puerto Rico, he was basically the living representation of the crown's power and authority that Columbus's son had just battled against in court. So de Leon really didn't get along all that well with the younger Columbus. And when Diego finally strolled into Puerto Rico with his newly inherited rights, he began doing whatever he could to undermine De Leon's power and authority. Now, 
those pesky Spanish courts had decided that, yeah, Diego was viceroy and all, but he couldn't just fire the crown-appointed governor. So De Leon couldn't be removed outright. But Diego took a sort of death-by-a-thousand-cuts approach and proceeded to make De Leon's life miserable. Diego was becoming a thorn in the side of men on both sides of the Atlantic. His very presence in the New World was a direct challenge to King Ferdinand's authority and a direct threat to De Leon's power. So the two men put their heads together and came up with a plan. See, the infamous contract stated that the Columbuses only had rights to lands they found. If someone else found land, well, that meant that the crown could keep Diego's grubby hands off of it. The king had just the right place in mind. There was thought to be a very large island to the northwest of the Bahamas. De Leon was to check out the reports, and in return, he'd get to govern the territory and receive some of the profits. On March 4, 1513, De Leon set sail from Puerto Rico with three ships and 200 men to stick it to Diego and do some conquistadoring. He first spotted Florida on April 2nd, naming the land La Florida. He ended up making his first landfall somewhere near modern-day Jacksonville, but only spent a few days in the area before getting back on the water. The ships then headed south, hugging the barrier islands of Florida's east coast until they finally rounded the southernmost island, entering a shallow bay that De Leon named Bayo Biscaino today's Biscayne Bay. Mind you, we are now 21 years removed from Columbus first arriving in the New World. And I do wonder how much the Calusa and Tequesta had seen or heard about the Spanish during those early years. Unfortunately, there's just not that solid of a historical record from South Florida's natives, so we are left to guess. We know that no official exploration of Florida had taken place by this point, but we also know that the Caribbean is a relatively small place. So I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch to say that some Spaniards might have already stepped foot in Florida. I mean, these guys were sailing around, exploring, trading, slaving, finding themselves shipwrecked. There's no way of knowing for sure. But if there was any sort of contact it was probably minimal, perhaps just a handful of Spanish that got lost along the way. For the most part, the Calusa and Tequesta had been living their normal lives, like they'd been living for thousands of years. At this point, between both tribes, you had thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people living in South Florida. The place was full of people. But remember, the Calusa were far more numerous. And that might help explain the difference in reaction when the Spanish finally visited the territory of each tribe. When De Leon pulled into Biscayne Bay, it might have been the first moment that Tequesta saw the alien invasion for themselves. What must they have been thinking seeing three huge ships slowly making their way across peaceful Biscayne Bay. 
the Tequesta might have known that they were coming because there were native tribes living all along Florida's east coast. It would have been easy for one of them to see the ships sailing by, and it's possible that word had made its way down to the Tequesta. So perhaps they knew something was on its way. And when it decided to hang a right and set a course straight for their home, I imagine fear struck their hearts because they fled. De Leon landed at the Tequesta settlement at the mouth of the Miami River, but was welcomed by what I imagine was an eerie silence. It was obvious that a large group of people were living there, but not a soul was to be found. The Spanish probably knew that the inhabitants of this empty settlement were hiding in the surrounding wilderness, likely peering at them from a safe distance. De Leon may not have been met with violent force, but he didn't get a warm reception either. This was sort of like purgatory, because you knew the locals were skittish, and that's never a good sign. So after 10 days in the area, De Leon decided to set sail once again. Across the peninsula in southwest Florida, the Calusa were likely being regaled with tales of the Spanish invasion too. But at some point before De Leon reached their territory, the Calusa had decided that they weren't going to flee. Now remember, the Calusa had much greater numbers than the Tequesta. They were the militarily dominant tribe in the area. The Spanish ships might have been impressive, but the Calusa had numbers and they knew it. So when they stood on that beach that opened up the episode and saw Spanish ships approaching, they didn't tuck tail and run. They didn't assemble a welcoming party either. Instead, when De Leon landed, they surrounded his ships with warriors in war canoes, arrows locked and loaded. De Leon quickly pulled up anchor, took his leave, and proceeded to sail around southwest Florida some more, but basically spent the next several weeks engaged in a series of skirmishes. The Calusa had decided they didn't like these strange visitors, and they were too numerous for their meager Spanish force. So on June 14th, De Leon gave up and set a course back to Puerto Rico. But that wouldn't be the last time the Calusa and the Spanish would meet. It would take almost a decade, but De Leon would make his way back to Calusa territory to finish what he started. Now, due to the complicated game of political chess that De Leon found himself constantly having to play, he couldn't get back to Florida right away. He would have to travel to Spain several times to protect the titles and promises made to him by the crown. But he wasn't the only intrepid conquistador in the Americas, and eventually word reached him that several unofficial expeditions had been launched to his promised land during those intervening years. So eight years after he had been expelled from Florida by the Calusa, De Leon decided it was high time to head back. In 1521, De Leon assembled a full-on colonizing force, including soldiers, farmers, and priests, and all the supplies needed to establish a permanent settlement. And he headed right back to Calusa territory. 
I feel like I have to put myself in the shoes of the Calusa to really see this as something more than just another violent engagement between natives and Europeans as told by Europeans. Now, these guys had already seen the Spanish before, but standing on the beach this time around, it was probably clear to them that this wasn't just a scouting expedition. This was an all-out invasion. The Calusa still had the Spanish outnumbered, but think about this from their perspective. Think about what this invasion must have felt like. These huge ships with massive sails, these men clad in metal clothes, shooting fireballs from advanced weapons. Even with their huge numbers, the Calusa must have felt some sort of trepidation. And that beach might have looked the same as it did eight years earlier, but the faces didn't. This is all pure speculation, but I like to imagine that maybe that first time that De Leon was around, a young child secretly followed the warriors of his tribe as they marched out to face the Spanish, hiding out in the woods to catch a glimpse of the battle. And maybe this time around, that child was an adolescent that might have been expected to join the march and shed blood if need be. The adolescents from last time around were now young men with budding families, and so the stakes for them were higher. The Calusa women and men probably didn't really know what to make of the Spanish the first time around, but this time they knew that these foreigners had been beaten back and still came back for more. De Leon landed somewhere near Fort Myers, but this chapter of his story has an even more abrupt end than any of his previous landings. The Calusa had decided they weren't messing around, because before the Spanish could establish a settlement, they mounted an attack. Now, at that battle, there was an unnamed warrior who carried the fate of this alien conquest in his quiver. Because when he pulled back his bowstring, he launched the missile that would seal De Leon's fate. The arrow struck De Leon in his thigh, and it soon became apparent that his injury was serious, and so the entire expedition was called off to take him to Havana. In July 1521, Governor Juan Ponce de Leon succumbed to his wounds and his body was taken back to Puerto Rico to be laid to rest. Many of you might not have known that Ponce de Leon was the first governor of Puerto Rico. You might not know that he was just 19 years old and fresh off the front lines in Spain's war with the Moors when he joined Columbus's second voyage to the New World in 1493. You're probably more familiar with the fact that De Leon was the first conquistador to explore Florida. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you definitely know of his purported search for the Fountain of Youth. The search that was completely fabricated, by the way. But far from providing a Fountain of Youth, Florida was the agent of De Leon's death. And quite literally, I mean, it wasn't just that the arrow that struck him was crafted and flung by South Florida's native people, it is also thought to have delivered a poison native to the Everglades. 
The Calusa are known to have dipped their arrows in the sap of the manchineel tree, one of the deadliest trees in the world. And so South Florida's native people and its natural surroundings literally combined in a deadly way to bring this celebrated Spanish conquistador and his plans to spread the Spanish empire to a bitter end. Of course, De Leon would not be the only Spaniard with plans to spread the Spanish empire. And for the time being, Florida wouldn't be the focus of Spanish conquest, but the Americas would. And South Florida, being on the southern tip of this peninsula that sticks straight out into the Caribbean, would be right in the middle of all this activity. It is perhaps a testament to how difficult Florida was to conquer that the Spanish took so long to finally return. But return they would. As more and more of these aliens poured into the new world, it was only a matter of time before the invasion once again made its way to South Florida.